Well, good morning. Glad you made it out on, again, this blustery uh, January day. This time last year, we kept getting pounded by 20-inch snow, so um, I'm still for that, just not on the weekend. We want them in the middle of the week. Ernie's giving me the, you can stay at my house, dude. You don't have to go up a hill to get there. Um, I do love the snow, but I'm glad that we're getting Sundays that are unimpeded by, by weather at this point, but... Last week there was a word from Jeremiah that was shared during this time of worship and has a lot to do with just what God's doing in us in terms of, don't you love the way that God can take any material and turn it into gold? I mean, talk about refining ability. The ability of God is a refiner's fire to take our mess and make it into something special. I'm really loving a song right now. It's been a while since uh, probably there was even a song that I had heard uh, from Amy Grant, but she's got a song right now called Better Than Hallelujah. I don't know if you might have heard it, but it just it talks about how um, he's when we see mess, he sees um, just a place to love us, just a place of worship. Or or when he just she talks about like when this person is praying a prayer because they need help or they need deliverance, or or it's a soldier praying that he'll survive or live, or it's it's someone that's struggling with alcohol praying for deliverance or whatever that. What they hear is a prayer of desperation, and what he hears is better than a hallelujah. And I think that's a powerful concept that God takes our hard times, our even our, um, how to say, inadequacies and shortcomings and failures and turns them into something beautiful. And the word of the Lord was even just this morning that, that he takes that gold and, and that, that that pressure literally turns it almost into a gold dust and that someone just felt like that that was what God was spreading over the congregation was that rich and that real. And... Um, then um, there was this word. The Lord gave me a picture of several dandelions that had been, that had needles for petals living in a desolate valley, completely dry of water. Does anybody feel that way? Like you're in that season of, of desert. I was in Guadalajara, Mexico just, just for a couple of days this week, and, and it, was, it was amazing because it was 80 in the day, and the, the one day that I was there on Wednesday, it was 80, and then at night it was 33. So I was like, man. The desert is an interesting place. Guadalajara is not exactly a desert, but it's desert-esque. And it can be a dangerous and desolate and yet somehow beautiful place. And, and I'm hoping that uh, sometime in the immediate future, maybe at a Learning to Live on Wednesdays uh, coming soon, Kathy Tangalakis will do a teaching on wildernesses because I think it's just a powerful teaching. But the Word goes on to say, I invite you to come and look up to me. The invitation is, of course, from God for water and sun, for I have the spring that gives forth life. Come and freely drink because I'm stirring the sky above to bring that rain. You ever been in a place where you can see the rain coming? That's an amazing thing. I, one of my favorite things to do to take people to see in South Africa is to go out to Cape Point, which is where the Indian Ocean meets uh, the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And it's, you know, they, they talk about the butterfly effect, and that's the place where hurricane, hurricanes begin and, and that kind of thing. And it literally, you can see weather, not, not of hurricane, <laughs> so it is a butterfly, but you will see a cloud just develop and start to burst, and then you know you should probably get down from where the lighthouse is because it's about to get hectic. But there's a song that BJ is going to sing over us at the end of this service. Um, and in the song, there's a lyric that just says that I can feel the sun uh, before it starts to, I can see the sunrise before it starts to shine. Or I, I'm going to get this right. I can see the light before I see the sunrise. Or I can feel the wind uh, on my arm before it starts to blow. There's just this place where the Lord, even in your desperation, can speak hope to you. And um, I pray that for you today. I want us to uh, consider, in fact, um, 
this fact that Jesus fights for you. That's really the point today. I had an amazing flight back. At, I had a horrible itinerary, so literally I, I left my house at 4.30 a.m. on Tuesday, got to my hotel in Guadalajara about 9 uh, p.m., uh, which would have been 10 o'clock here, actually, and then um, had all-day meetings, which were amazing and worth it, on Wednesday. But then on Thursday, I got up uh, at 4 a.m., to meet uh, my ride and leave the hotel at 4.30 a.m. and got back to my home in Newport at 9 p.m. So I vote for not doing meetings uh, that create such a travel burden that only last one day, So I, and I made that point. Um, but my flight back, I have to say to you, was incredibly impactful. It was just very impactful. I had a, uh, just an amazing time with Jesus. Uh, sitting next to this lady, talking about Jesus and that kind of thing. And I want to share some of that with you today. Last week, we, we went from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. And we're walking our way through uh, the life of Christ, the stories and parables of Jesus. And uh, I don't know if, uh, boy, that dance. I never get tired of the dance freedom. Uh, by the way, ladies, excellent day. Awesome, awesome job. Beautiful. Um, but did you ever consider this? Uh, in fact, there was a book I read once about the Revolutionary War in our own country here. And it was the title of the book was What Price Freedom? And the question was just simplistically, uh, have you considered the price that those revolutionaries paid for our freedom? And it, and it took you through, you may have read, there are other places where this has been published, but it took you through a bit of the story uh, or stories of the different men who signed the Constitution and what was their ultimate fate. And, and let's just say for the most part, it didn't go well for them. Uh, they, they sacrificed a great amount so that we could even to this day have a country where, where we still value our, our freedom. And, and it occurs to me as even I see that dance and I consider the song and the words that were, were sang over us, just the power of what uh, Jesus did uh, to attain our freedom. Uh, but, but before we get into that, let's back up for a second. Because, by the way, I am a bit of a history buff. Anybody in a place like history? Anybody like history? I love history. Thank you. Um, yeah, Kevin likes history. I, um, I particularly was interested in military history. That may seem a bit odd to you, but I was, I was fascinated with that. In fact, my minor in, in college was um, social studies, but I really emphasized So there was some geography and whatnot in that, but I really emphasized the history side of that. And as much as was possible, I was interested in kings and kingdoms and, and what that looked like in, in the course of history. And uh, I, has anybody seen, I think that I have, I'll have to be honest, I haven't seen the 2007 version of this movie. Uh, I'm the old school guy, the 1961 version of the movie uh, 300. Uh, I did watch a little bit about the making of the movie 300 from 2007. I, I was uh, a little concerned about it as a dad, I guess. So, um, But... but it, do you, are you familiar with that story? Anyone familiar with the story of uh, the Battle of uh, Thermopylae? 480 B.C. where Xerxes, this actually has a biblical connection, but where King Xerxes um, attacked, you know, basically the Persians um, had conquered the known world. I mean, they literally, um, how to say, occupied. That would be the way to say that. They, that doesn't mean that, you know, they, it was a large area, okay? So, but they occupied the known world and so therefore uh, pulled taxation from the known world. So you can see why kings were interested in uh, conquest because it meant more money for, for the um, treasury, right? So, but they, there was this little island. There was this little place. There was, there was Greece. And they desperately wanted Greece. 
You know, in fact, you remember in the story of Esther, the book of Esther, King Xerxes, is, they had had a defeat at Greece, and so it was embarrassing. And so he had pulled in all his men and all his generals, and they were throwing a big party. That's how the book of Esther starts. And, and Queen Vashti refused to parade around for the guys who had just had a six-month... I mean, they had just been on a bench for six months, and she refused, and she got fired as the queen. I didn't even know that could happen. But she got fired. And that's when the whole contest started for a new queen, and that's where Esther comes in. We'll, we'll connect the stories here because Xerxes, this was the, the first Xerxes, but he, he had, uh, yeah, they had come against Greece. And so they're in this epic battle. And um, the story of the Battle of Thermopylae um, pits basically the armies of Persia. Some, some estimate that probably between 100 and 300,000 men. I mean, in the day they used to say millions, but I think that they were exaggerating. Historians believe it was the, a formidable force against basically, uh, I mean, uh, the Greeks were, were uh, the, the majority of the army was afraid of failure, of defeat. And so King Leonidas sent them home, and he kept only his royal guard. And they stood in what was known as uh, the Gates of Fire, um, which was a, a narrow pass, and these 300 Spartans, plus a few others who pitched in, by the way, but, but the story focuses on these 300 Spartans. It was still less than 1,000 men that stood in the gap to cut off this horde of... Not, and now understand this, too, that in that day, the Persians, this, this was an army with great reputation. In fact, one of the reasons that the Greeks turned back was that they had a legitimate fear. I mean, the, the Persians to them were like the... I mean, the Spartans were amazing warriors. But the, the Persians, they were like the big brother to them. They were everything probably that the Greeks would have wanted to be except for this royal guard of Spartans led by King Leonidas. And they literally stood in this gap, 300 men against this, this horde of men. And what the point I'm wanting to make here and what I'm trying to get to you is that history is full of stories like this one where men fought against insurmountable odds but with incredible uh, fierceness and, and passion and commitment because they were defending their homeland. The reality is you can get a force away from home and, and the threat of uh, some great harm coming to their family, uh, you know, their, their actual, the land that they, uh, that is theirs, and, and they might retreat, they might regroup, but when you push them against the wall that is the protecting of their family, they will literally fight to the, fight to the death, which is ultimately what the Spartans did. But it was such a, it was such an incredible battle and it was such a shock, I think, to the Persians that they did, in fact, retreat. They came back later, but ultimately it, it um, rallied the other Greek soldiers to believe then that they actually were good enough to face the Persians, and they defeated them only a year later. And there was one place. But, and, and there are other stories like that. Maybe you're familiar with some of the battles of... Uh, Vietnam, and there, there's one particular battle that was always intriguing to me. I wrote a, an extended uh, term paper about this when I was in college, which was 20 years ago, so my history may be a bit rusty, but the Battle of Quezon, where the Marines were cut off. And, but it was like home to them. It was like a home base, but not to the same degree as, as what I'm describing to you today, but yet they fought, again, against the uh, North Vietnamese, and, and they held and held and held the ground with only resupply from the air. Though it is interesting that they did have air cover, so somehow that has a spiritual significance to me, too, because I feel like even when the odds are against us, we got air cover, you know what I'm saying? But 
And maybe there's no better example in history than what I'd already mentioned, our own revolutionary uh, soldiers, the Minutemen who fought against the well-organized British Army, the Redcoats, as it were. What's the story of, of people who, the difference, that will make the difference. They were defending their homeland. I don't think, Tom, that they would have had any opportunity to defeat the British in Britain. But this was their place. They were fighting for their freedom. So when everything came against them and there was, there was probably this significant uh, disappointment, discouragement, they still didn't quit because they were fighting for home. And then the Bible, of course, is full of stories like this too, where the Israelites were against great odds. Of course, we know who don't care about odds, right? We know that God's not concerned about odds. He doesn't, he doesn't check with Las Vegas when he's trying to do something in your life and see what the odds are that that's going to work out. But you look at the story of um, David against Goliath. I mean, that has to be one of the best of all time, underdog, right, stories. But you look at that scenario. David was, It wasn't just that David was trying to prove that he was a man or that he, he, his hope, his trust was completely in God. It wasn't in himself. But he was also fighting for something that he believed in. Or the original 300, did you consider this? The story of Gideon. Right when I mean, talk about a, a disappointing kind of scenario. Every time they would start to have a harvest and their crops would start to produce, the enemy would come and steal their harvest. And so here's Gideon hiding, right, threshing wheat. He's hiding in a wine press, and the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to him, Ernie, and says, "Mighty man of valor." You know the story. I love the story. Gideon's like, "Who is he talking to?" <laughs> I mean, have you noticed I'm in here hiding to thresh this wheat and not only is my family the least among all the very not prominent family, but I'm the least in my family. And then you know the story. Gideon, God just raises him up. And he, I mean, he, was, he fleeced God. Man, I ain't fleecing God. I'm just telling you the truth, man. I'm staying away from that. But he fleeced God, and God honored him with due. And, and then, but he got the army together. I mean, he rallied more troops than he ever could have hoped to have rallied. Can you imagine? He probably thought, no way he's going to come fight with me. But they did. They came by the thousands. And God kept saying, that's too many. Till he whittled it down to how many? Somebody ought to make a movie about that. Whittled it down to 300. And they stood against the enemies of God and saw a great victory. Or one last reference, the story of Elisha. That story I just referenced is in Judges 6 through 8, but the story that I reference here is 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, verses 8 through 18. We see the story of Elisha, who was the mighty man of God who had been telling on the Assyrian army. Every, everywhere the king made a plan, Elisha just give a word of the Lord to the armies of Israel, and they would know in advance what they were going to do. But then, the, remember, Elisha's servant goes outside the tent, and he's like, oh, this, this is not good. This is not good. So he runs back in and he tells Elisha, he says, we're, we're done for because we're surrounded. These guys brought their chariot. They, they found out where we were. Somebody betrayed them. So they found out where we were. And Elisha says, don't sweat it, man. The ones that are for us are more than those that are against us. Because God comes through for people. God fights for people. But there's no place where this is more obvious and evident than in our next story about the life of Christ. 
Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, tell the part of the story where Jesus... Uh, now, remember last week we, we were coming from Luke. We, and, and you can find this story in Mark chapter 1, and you can also find this same story in Luke chapters 3 and 4. So, you, you know, you can cross-reference this story if you want. But, but we're going to come from Matthew today. And in this part of the story, last week we were talking about Jesus as a boy, 12 years old, the one glimpse that we get. And then in verse 2 of Luke chapter uh, 2... Verse 52 of Luke chapter 2, the scripture says it just kind of moves on past that and it it goes, basically covers a 19 year span and it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. And then we pick the story up here in Matthew and we see that Jesus is coming and John, of course, has been preaching in the wilderness and and he makes references to who Jesus is. This is the one, the promised one, and he baptizes him. Remember this, and the Spirit of God uh, speaks a word of affirmation and confirmation about who Jesus is. And then the word of the Lord says, and we're going to jump forward now to Matthew chapter 4, but it says then, and I will read this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to say, that's a little funny. <laughs> After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I was thinking that was a little bit obvious. Every time I read that, it just makes me smile. I think that's in there to make us smile. Of course he was hungry. He just fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Man, I get hungry. When I'm fasting, like when I'm not fasting, sometimes I forget to eat. But when I'm fasting, I'm hungry after 40 minutes. I don't know what it is, man. The devil starts early. And we look in the scripture, we're, we're given every reason to believe that this temptation started on day one. He, was, he went up into the wilderness to fast and to pray. And, and he was, from that time that he got there, the scripture tells us that he was, he, he was led by the Spirit. Now catch this, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was testing time. This was, this was the genesis of the battle. I probably would be remiss if I didn't say that the battle really started eons of time before this. But this is where we begin to see the fullness, the fruition of of what Jesus would walk through for us. Verse 3 says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So in this first temptation, this first challenge, the devil comes. I mean, he just hits him where he's hurting. Come on. You ever feel that way? Like he just, I mean, he's going he's gonna to poke the sore spot. Man, well, uh, like in my house, one of the things we do, this will sound meaner than it is, but, you know, if you got a little sore, somebody's going to poke it. Oh, pain button. Ha! Been doing that with my kids since they were little. Makes me sound mean, but I'm not. But it was always just not, not a real bad sore, you know, just a little, whoo, ha, pain button. But, you know, the enemy knows, he knows where we're hurting, and that's where he likes to hit us. Church, please hear what I'm saying this morning. It, it would do us good to be aware of what his strategies are. And for some of you, you just feel like, you know, there's so much disillusionment that happens in the body of Christ because the enemy comes and he hits us where we're hurting. But Jesus spoke truth to that. Can we talk about truth for a minute? Do you know the power of truth? 
Listen, this church is built on a foundation of biblical truth. I believe that. And, and, and that foundation, knowing the truth, speaking the truth, choosing not to believe a lie. Sometimes we lie to ourselves. We let those words come out of our mouth. And we lie to ourselves. But you know what? You've got to speak truth to your situation. And Jesus just said, hey, you know what? He was hungry. The idea of having something to eat right then, I'm sure, was very appealing to the physical man. But the spirit man spoke words, spoke truth, and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the devil, it seems to me that the devil said, Look, okay, you want to quote scripture? I can quote scripture too. Has the devil ever quote scripture to you? It does to me sometimes. He'll come in and try to pervert. Okay, you want to use truth? I'll just twist it a little bit. So he takes truth and he speaks that to Jesus. He says, Okay, fine. Just throw, if you believe the word is true, then just throw yourself off here because the word that you like to quote, you ever get in those little skirmishes with the devil? I do. Like I'll say a word, turns out he knows the Bible pretty good. And I sometimes have to, I'll be honest, I have to sometimes go back and do a little homework. Hey, okay. But the word always stands. And, and Jesus comes back to him and says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to a test. So again, now this had to frustrate the devil. Ah. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, now get this, all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. I mean, this was a time of Roman occupation, but all of, look, look at what it said there. Think back to some of those uh, movie depictions that you've seen of that, of that time and, and what he would have seen in that moment. It says that he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. I think sometimes we have diminished the stories of the Bible to the flannel graph and we forget the dimension in which they existed you know, they've become for us quaint little tales that hardly have any significance in or relevance to us. But this was a three-dimensional real story where Jesus saw all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And the devil said to him, All this I will give you, he said, if you would bow down and worship me. Now understand this, that Jesus knew... Now, and you've got to get this, that Jesus is, he's fighting this battle. He's a man and he's fighting this battle and he knows that a part of his purpose, he's believed this from God the Father. He's had, he's had to believe in faith that he is the chosen Messiah. I need you to hear that. He had to believe in faith that he was the chosen Messiah. He didn't cheat, okay? He didn't go to heaven every day and just, you know, I mean, he didn't have an out-of-body experience every day and get to go, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm still, I am actually the Messiah, but I'm going to go back down there and pretend I'm a man. No, the Scripture says to us in Hebrews, the, the writer of the Hebrews wrote this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are. He felt the fullness of what we feel. He was completely human. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.17. He was really a man and he had to believe that what Papa spoke to him was true, that he was the Messiah. And in this moment, though, there was a chance, there was an opportunity. The devil gave him an opportunity to shortcut it because the road ahead was hard. And you know the disciples later would have vied for... They would have said, take the deal. They wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what they wanted. You could be the king right now and liberate us. You could tell the Romans where to go and how to get there. Sounds like a plan. But Jesus, of course, again, came back with Scripture and said... Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him. 
and the angels came and attended him. Can you imagine? That was it, man. The devil was just frustrated. He made the devil quit. <laughs> I love that. That's all I want to do. I just want the devil to get frustrated when he's talking with me. Jeez, Louise, I'm just... Oh. Frustrated the devil. And he was... He left. The devil tested, challenged what Jesus believed about his life and his mission. In this, this 40-day uh, battle royale, this epic... Uh, this epic battle. It was an epic spiritual conflict with eternal ramifications. It's 40 days. Can you, can you think about that for a second? I mean, and consider this. Here, here's something that may well be true. It may have been like, that may have been the easiest 40 days for every other God follower. Because I would submit to you that every demon and imp all of the angels, the one-third that the Scripture tells us about in multiple places, most specifically Revelation chapter 12, but that, that all of that horde of, of demonic activity was focused on Jesus during that 40 days, if the enemy had any clue at all, and I think he did. I think all the forces of hell were focused in those 40 days on, on Jesus. And, and incidentally, the devil had every logistical advantage. From a military perspective, he had every logistical advantage. He was still supernatural. I mean, he's not God. Thank God. <laughs> he's not omnipresent, but, but he had an ability to create a scenario for, for again, Jesus who, who considered this, that Jesus stepped away from his deity to fight this battle for man as a man. Again, reference those verses I quoted a minute ago in Hebrews. But the devil, on the other hand, this is the same devil who was, who was deceitful and supernatural and ambitious. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14 says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. And I will make myself like the Most High. That's, that's the devil. It's, this is one ambitious enemy. You hear what I'm saying? I mean, in his mind, he had something to fight for too. Yet somehow Jesus withstood these incredibly long odds. And that's really the point I'm trying to make. That somehow Jesus withstood. Why? Why? To what advantage for him? And how? How did Jesus... Remember, we're following in the steps that we want to see. This, is, this was a day, a big day. Okay, this was 40 days. We're picking up the 40th day, but in the life of, of Jesus. And I submit to you the answer to that question is pretty simple. Why would he fight so ferociously, so furiously at such great personal expense? Because he had something to fight for. John 3.16, we could go there or any number of other places for God so loved the world. He had something. I mean, the devil tried everything he had to try. And he didn't stop at this 40 days, by the way. But Jesus withstood that. Why? Because he was his home turf. I'm telling you. Because he had something to fight for. Rather, he had someone to fight for. Now, here's what I'm trying. Really, what the Lord wants to communicate today is how much he loves you. This story for me, when I was sitting on that plane... Flying from at that point, I was going from Phoenix to Charlotte, and the lady next to me 
I'm sure she was like, oh, i got a depressed dude sitting next to me. What's going on? Moist eyes. I explained to her later I wasn't, in fact, depressed, but that I was really pretty happy, <laughs> but overwhelmed with the greatness of God. I had a very good conversation with her about that. But, but Jesus fought for you. He, the things we've talked about today, the things we talk about every Sunday, Brandon, he fought for your freedom. He fought, he fought for your very life. He fought for your freedom. He fought for your redemption. Listen, this didn't just, this, this didn't just culminate on the cross. It did culminate, but it, this was an epic battle that lasted for an extremely long time. I want you to think. I want you to think about those times when the odds were stacked against a military force. And, and somehow, I, I, would, I want you to try to put yourself in the place where you were the protected because you were and you are. Where you were the loved. You were the rescued. You were the redeemed. You were the freed. You were the one someone came back for. Because some of you today, you need to hear that because the devil has lied to you. You think you're abandoned. Somehow the enemy can lie to us and make us somehow believe that. But you've got to see what Jesus did and what Jesus does. came as a man to fight for men, to fight for us. You were the something he had on his mind when he endured the on, this incredible onslaught of the devil. You were the someone. You were the something. But let's back up for a second and reconsider even what we spoke about last week from Luke chapter 2. Just to show me some grace right now, let me back up to Jesus as a 12-year-old. Let's go back to that place because this week I was having a little bit of trouble getting away from that part of the story too. So I was doing some journaling and some thinking and some research. I was wondering what Jesus at 12 was doing at the Passover. Now, I'm no Jewish historian, but I know a little bit. I have friends that are, that are still practicing Jews. And, and, I, and I know enough to know this, that you bar mitzvah, at 13, or when that's the transition, the segue from, from being a youth to an adult. The word bar mitzvah literally, that phrase literally means to come under the covenant. So it's the time when, when no longer are you under the covenant because your parents would obey the law, but you yourself had to make a choice to be under the covenant. And, and But Jesus at 12 wouldn't have bar mitzvah, but it was common. It was common practice for a 12-year-old who was about to bar mitzvah to get to make the journey for the Passover. Though they weren't allowed to participate in worship, they could come because the Passover was an incredible festival. It was a time where the, the priest and, and the teachers would give classes and instruction on what, and, and a historical review of the Passover. So here's Jesus at 12 with the other 12-year-olds who, who can't yet participate in worship, but he's hearing and he's learning. And no doubt his mom had been teaching him before that too. I'm sure that he had already been learning about everything that you could learn about, right? To be a good Jewish boy. On top of that, he was learning about what it would mean to be the Messiah. I wonder what that looked like. I, I do. I, I wonder what the conversations were like. I wonder if they ever tried to not talk about it. I, I don't know, but at 12... I know this, that the story we talked about last week, Jesus was left behind. I mean, for three days, his parents, you know, we joked a bit about that. And, and we talked about how, how did Luke even get that story? I mean, somewhere when Jesus was rolling with the disciples, he must have said, somebody, Peter probably was talking about, man, there was this one time I got in so much trouble. And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. When I was 12, I stayed behind and my parents left. And I, forgot, I didn't tell them that I was there. And when my mom got back, she was unhappy. I mean, Luke 
he cleaned it up a little bit and said she was in great distress or greatly distressed. Yeah, greatly distressed. Destroying Walmart. That's <laughs> whew. I mean, Karen, I told you, Karen lost Jacob for a minute once and she destroyed a whole display. And she's a small person. She ran straight through a display looking for Jacob. He grabbed the wrong lady's leg. So while she's standing there in the middle of a destroyed Easter display, some lady comes back and says, Hey, is this your son? <laughs> I can only imagine what was going on in Mary and Joseph. I don't think they were sleeping. Anyway, that was that story. I digress. <laughs> We've already talked about that. But then I wondered, I mean, what was Jesus? What was it like for him? A 12-year-old learning, learning about the Passover, talking about all these truths. And let's think about the Passover for a second. Let's consider that, the first Passover that the Scripture talks about. Let's consider what that, what that might have been like. Because when Jesus heard about that Passover, when he was taught about that Passover, about when the children of Israel, I mean, plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh would say, yeah, you can go, and then he would always relent and say, no, you can't leave, and then finally it was on. And... and the Lord said, okay, to Moses, he said, I want you to, to have a, go take a lamb and I want you to have a feast. It was the first Passover feast and then I want you to take the blood from that lamb and I want you to put it over the doorpost because tonight the death angel will pass through the land and if there's not blood on the doorpost, the firstborn in the house will die. And now Jesus is hearing about that Passover knowing. But one day, the promise was that one day there would be a spotless lamb, once and for all. A Messiah who would come to redeem us all. Who would, who would put an end to the, the power of death once and for all. And so here's Jesus at 12. Do you hear what I'm saying? At 12, hearing this story, knowing that he's that lamb. Boy, that would reprioritize your teen years. So when Jesus said in Luke chapter 2, I must be about my father's business. Listen, this was no trite statement. This was no simple affirmation of an easy road to walk. Jesus knew that he was meant to be that spotless sacrificial lamb. And now we pick this story up 19 years later. The writer of the Proverbs wrote that in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5, every word of the Lord is, every word of God is tested. And this word that Jesus had about who he was, about what his father's business was, was tested, challenged. And he knew it was coming. In fact, I'm sure that this wasn't the first time that the devil had tried to lie to him. It had been a significant battle for a significant season. I think he had to know that that meant that he would live, have to live a holy life and die a horrible death. What a weight to carry. I mean, we, we don't know how we're going to pay a bill and we can't sleep. You know what I'm saying? But somehow the hope of eternity hinges on him. Yeah, I'm trying to get you to think about it. Yes, I actually am. Absolutely. Hey, Mitch, I'm thinking it's about 112 in here. Any chance you could turn that down a little bit? And then the culmination. 
They got coats on over here, man. Well, this side is waving fans. So why don't y'all move over there and you guys move over there? I think the vintage works better over this. This sleeve is working better. Okay, sorry. Split the difference, Mitch. Thanks. Then Matthew 27. Let me refocus us. Sorry for the distraction. But the culmination of this battle took place on the cross where the sense of desperation was so deep, the Scripture tells us. Matthew 27. The sense of desperation was so deep in Jesus. Now, again, I'm trying to get us to understand. I'm trying to get us to somehow connect with the desperation in this, in this battle. But that sense of desperation, Matthew tells us, was so deep that Jesus even felt like the Father had forsaken him. Remember that? When he said in verse 45, Now this, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth. It's on, Tom. This is it. The, the epic nature of this battle is coming to its full fruition. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, first of all, Jesus was actually quoting from Psalm 22 and verse 1, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quoted that psalm in order to draw attention to the fact that in this moment he was fulfilling the fullness of this passage and this passage in and of itself is it's a passage about the the promise of the coming coming messiah it's an amazing passage i'm not going to take the time to read it right now but i would encourage you if you're taking notes or i actually have extra copies of my notes today and they will be ultimately posted but but uh, psalm 22 even jump forward and read verses 11 through 18 and you see the prophecy that that jesus knows in his heart he's fulfilling but i have to also believe this that this wasn't just a random quoting of scripture but that that darkness that fell in that moment when he took on the entire weight of the sin load for all of humanity then and and everything in the past and everything in the future that that was a weight that we can't begin to imagine and this this word of prophecy about it and it's very descriptive and depictive in Psalm 22 was written now I want you to get this this moment is intensely horrible I don't have I don't have the right adjectives to describe this but this scripture in Psalms, Nils, was written 600 years before the birth of Christ. He knew in advance what this battle would be like. Final thought. Let's finish with, to return to a point of consideration with Matthew 23 and verse 24. Where we see, I'll just read this one. I've got enough time to read it. I didn't actually pre-mark this. I was just going to tell you about it, but I think I'll give it a look. Because it's amazing. What I want you to see what Jesus did. This is really what I've been trying to get to the whole day. Because I want you to see what Jesus did when he came off of that that time of fasting and praying when he, when he came down from the wilderness and, and the 40 days had ended and, and the first thing that we find out is that John the Baptist had been arrested and so even again for the fulfillment of a prophecy Jesus went straight away to Galilee which was again the, it's a fulfillment of prophecy that that's where the word would first be heard but then check out what the scripture says that he did next it says and I think I might have given you the wrong reference. 23 and 24. 
Yeah, verses 23 and 24 was what I wanted to point you to. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in, all, in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. That's why he did what he did. Because he had something to fight for. And Josh Swift was what he had to fight for. And Ron Bernard. And Paul Robertson. And Annabelle Fuselet. And Clark Jackson. And Molly Hash. And Laura Donnelly. Because you were what he had to fight for. 